1: Hello from Gabrielle at the NBN Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the historical fantasy series. You can find out more about my work on my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. Today's podcast will be about adventure and what could be more adventurous than traveling to a faraway place that's hard to get to and even more of a challenge to get around in. The Germans have another descriptive word for the anglicized word wanderlust, fernweh, or the pain of the distant. In this context, I would interpret pain as more of a yearning, an ache. These days, traveling to most places is a relatively painless process with the availability of the internet and flights to even remote locations. Centuries ago, it was different. Explorers braved hunger, disease, frostbite, or dehydration and hostile natives to fulfill their longing for distant places. So books about explorers are like epic fantasy adventures without the magic and machinations. Most explorers did have to learn from necessity to be team players, though some definitely leaned towards the limelight. A new work by Joe Wolfe, The Great Horizon, features a varied palette of them, including some women. Amidst portraits of the well-known explorers, such as Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic explorer, and Sir Edmund Hillary, who summited Everest along with Tenzin Norgay, a host of lesser explorers are introduced, such as Dame Freya Madeline Stark, who explored the Middle East beginning in 1928 and was still traveling when she was in her 80s. The Great Horizon was published in association with the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, which enabled Joe to use their archival material, including photographs, as well as travel journals and letters. We find out that Borge Usland always packs an almond cake as a special treat for his solitary explorations of the polar regions. While we read an excerpt of the letter Himalayan explorer and plant collector Frank Kingdon Ward wrote, we can treat ourselves to a photograph of the Tsangpo Gorge that he reached and partially mapped back in 1924. And the photo of Fanny Bullock Workman on the karakaram Siachen Glacier in 1912, holding a sign for the suffrage movement. Is priceless. I'd actually like to read a bit from the book, a chapter pertaining to Annie Taylor, who's mentioned later on in the interview several times. Annie was a missionary, and she went to Tibet at the time it was forbidden in uh, the 1890s. So I'm going to begin the narration here with the town of Jekundu was known for its tea merchants who would trade their produce for Tibet's rich exports of wool hides and furs, gold dust and mercury. Annie observed that the tea was compressed into bricks about 14 inches long. Eight bricks were then sewn into a skin, which were loaded onto yaks for transport into Lhasa, in a land where tea was so widely available, it must have been frustrating to find that. At high altitudes, water boiled while it was still tepid. Annie had to drink her tea quickly to prevent the crust of ice forming on the top. The effects of the elevation were taking their toll in other ways too, and Annie would wake in the night gasping for breath. She was undeterred. At Christmas, She even managed to conjure a pudding from the supplies of flour, sugar, suet, and currants that she had brought with her. On the 31st of December, 1892, they crossed the Bochu River and entered the district of Lhasa, with the city itself only a few days away. With hindsight, Annie admitted that she should have left her horses there and continued on foot, taking a less conspicuous route and arriving at the gates of Lhasa discreetly. At that time, however, she was in a weakened condition, and a constant menace of brigands persuaded her to stay on horseback and keep to the well-trodden paths. A few days later, she was arrested, having been betrayed by two of her companions, a man named Noga and his wife who had deserted her a few days previously, and gone on ahead to warn the authorities about her presence. Officials had been summoned from Lhasa to question her. Filled with dread, she awaited their arrival. Annie knew the only thing that could save her life was her attitude. Submission, which could be interpreted as guilt, was not an option. Military chiefs and magistrates arrived, and tents were pitched, ready for a tribunal. When Annie was called before them, she was accused of stealing. Holding her ground, she demanded justice and courtesy. She complained at the standard of food she was offered and drew a verbal picture of herself as a religious teacher with powerful connections and a legitimate reason to be traveling through Tibet. When she was told that she would be sent back to China unaccompanied with only her exhausted horses and meager supplies, She raged and accused him of sending her to her death, either through starvation, exposure, or violent attack. She argued also for the lives of her two remaining companions, Ponzo and Penting, who would most likely be beheaded for helping a foreign intruder if they were taken to Lhasa. Annie's father, who had engaged her in so many verbal battles, might well have been proud. Grudgingly acquiescent, Annie's captors granted her release along with Ponceau and Penting. For her return journey, they gave her food, an old tent, two fresh horses, and some silver rupees. They also gave her a guard of ten soldiers to protect her from bandits. It was as much as Annie could reasonably have expected, but her little party was still in grave danger. Two days into the return journey, the soldiers obviously satisfied that they had done their duty, left him with a caravan of traders who were heading the same way. Although there were safety in numbers, Annie was not prepared to travel at the plodding rate of her heavily loaded yaks, so she insisted that she and her two companions ride on ahead. It was a daring and potentially disastrous decision. At a monastery which Annie had passed on her outward journey and where she had received friendly treatment, the attitude of the lamas was now openly hostile. They had been told that Annie was a witch who could see through mountains and locate all the sources of gold, a poisonous rumor originating from Nolga and his wife, which had now spread far and wide. Most wanted to stone the strangers and throw their bodies into the river. They were only prevented from doing so by the more rational arguments of the head lama. Annie, looking at the ranks of suspicious faces, still watching her little encampment, thought it wise to move swiftly on. Tibet was now in a grip of winter, so the three travelers camped each night on the snow. Ironically, they risked sunstroke on the high mountain passes. (laughs) As the drifts became impassable, they were forced to make a detour and lead the frightened horses down a glacier. Both horses succumbed to the cold, but Annie and her companions struggled on even as wolves hunted their paths. In February, they reached Jecundo, where Penting took his leave and made his way home to Gala. Annie and Ponzo completed the last leg of the journey together, staying in village houses wherever possible but on many occasions sleeping in the open air. My bed was either on the ground, in the lee of a pile of luggage, or, if I chanced to find one, a hole, the sides of which protected me from the fierce icy blasts. A piece of felt to cover the ice at the bottom of the hole made my couch, and a warm sleeping bag into which I crept formed my sleeping clothes. On the 12th of April, 1893, they reached China. Annie gazed in heartfelt gratitude at fertile landscapes of green grass, apricot trees, and fields of growing corn. At last, she was safe. In seven months and ten days, she had traveled 1,300 miles across some of the most inhospitable terrain on earth. Truly an incredible story. And as Joe mentioned in our interview, which you'll be hearing shortly, Annie Taylor has not been written about extensively yet. So I think that would make a great movie. The book, The Great Horizon, was published, as I said, with the help of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. For 130 years, the RSGS has been working to broaden public awareness of the breadth and depth of geographical sciences and to promote greater understanding of contemporary issues which shape our future from 19th century polar exploration to 21st century research into global climate change. Today it is an educational charity which promotes an understanding of natural environments and human societies and how they interact. Its vision is to create better stewards of our world by informing and inspiring individuals about the interplay between people, places, and the planet. Their website is rsgs.org and a little bit about our writer, Joe Wolf. In 2014, Jo began digging into the archives of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society in a mission to bring to light some half-forgotten figures in the field of exploration. She came across some remarkable stories of endurance and survival and started to piece them together in a book that celebrates the society's ongoing support of explorers and scientists. In 2016, she was invited to become writer-in-residence at the RSGS. Jo was born in Shropshire. She and her husband, Colin, have two daughters, and they live in Argo. Jo has always had a passion for writing, along with a lively fascination for history and the natural world. You can visit her website. It's thehazeltree.com, and there are hyphens in those words. So it's the-hazel-tree.com, and you can keep up with her there. So I'm going to go ahead and welcome her on the show now. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us today on our show. We're going to be talking about your book, The Great Horizon. I'd like to start off with my first question. You've tried to create lively and colorful portraits while still maintaining historical accuracy. It must be a difficult balance. For example, Stanley was sent to Africa to rescue the stranded Emine Pasha, and after three years succeeded. Though there was a mishap when Emin stepped through an open window, mistaking it for a balcony door, we are naturally inclined to speculate if Emin was suicidal or drunk. Were there times you had a sense that something didn't jibe with official
0: accounts? but had to leave it out due to a lack of evidence? Well, hello. Thank you very much, first of all, Gabrielle, for asking me to um, to have a chat about the book. Um, yes, that's a very interesting question. Um, and it's an interesting thing that you picked up there about the story about um, Emin Pasha and stanley in africa and of course there is no way of knowing whether emin was suicidal or drunk or just merely confused um, because he'd been through um quite a long siege um up until then and he'd just been rescued he he might just have been disorientated we we just don't know um and so yes there are there are several occasions where that you really only have one account to go on um, and it's usually the explorer's account. Um, and really, sometimes there is nothing to, um, to give an alternative explanation. I didn't find any new discrepancies while I, was, while I was doing my research. But there are several that may never actually be resolved. Uh, one I was finding, again, um, staying with H.M. Stanley in Africa, Um, which is really just as simple as the date that he found Livingston, when he found David Livingston, because um, it's usually given as the 10th of November, 1871, but um, several biographers and people in particular, Tim Jeal, who who wrote his biography, um, say that um, perhaps both explorers had lost track of the date due to illness, as explorers often did at that time. And so... The the meeting, the famous meeting, could have taken place perhaps on the 3rd of November or any time in between. And there's another source um, that says that maybe Livingstone had suggested that it took place on the 28th of October. So we really don't know. And then, of course, the actual circumstances of the meeting. I mean, everybody knows the, the kind of iconic phrase that Stanley is supposed to have uttered, saying, Dr. Livingstone, I presume... And um, that really, most people think now that that really seems to think that he later um, conjured out of his imagination, possibly for the consumption of the, the newspapers and to, to possibly make a, a, a very important meeting even more colourful. And, and it, it, sort of, it has a very kind of British flavour, doesn't it, really? The both gentlemen doffing hats there in the African. Me. Yes, jolly nice to meet you. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. you know it was all very all very British and polite and you know um and that's of course the the um the impression that Stanley in particular wanted to give you know that he, in spite of the extremity of the the circumstances um that he was in command of himself and it was all very um amicable and of course it was amicable. Um, but actually um, he found Livingston in in quite a reduced state of health. You know, Livingston was not very well at all. And, um, you know, in a way, Livingston became, just while the short time Stanley was there, I mean, Stanley came to admire him very much, almost like a father figure, I think, really, reading between the lines. Um, And so, you know, when you get down to the actual sort of reading about it from various perspectives it, it becomes even more interesting than that you know that there was a, a lot of feeling between the two men and um when stanley did actually leave livingston because he was very reluctant to leave him he wanted to bring him with him because he thought he was he obviously was there to save him to bring him out um, but Liv- livingston wasn't going to go he wasn't going to leave his um his kind of his life lifetimes mission um which was to try and um really prevent slavery he wanted to try and stop the slave trade basically and to call the world's attention to it uh, he persuaded stanley to go um, and said well look just leave me here and tr- and you you be my messenger um, and you know stanley writing about afterwards was quite emotional about leaving him and i do believe that part of it i think stanley was whatever else other people say about him i do think he was an emotional man he was very caught up with the emotions of livingston and his um, Self imposed mission um, that he was putting before his own life and everybody else's, really. Um, so, yeah. What I hear you
1: saying is that the surviving accounts that we have, the historical accounts, are either written by the explorer or perhaps by someone who admired the explorer and had a vested interest in making the explorer into an even greater figure and so it is hard to know the truth because the there is no absolute truth
0: we're looking at a story through the perspective Absolutely. of whoever yes, wrote that's it that's very true and of course you have to remember with stanley in particular that he was a journalist you know he was employed by um i think it was the new york herald i can't remember exactly it was a, it was a, an american newspaper uh, that he was employed by to actually go and find Livingstone, and he was there to um, to try and you know make a good story, and he was a very good storyteller. Um, and of course, yes, I mean we're you know we only have sometimes the accounts of explorers or the people who were employed to write a good story about them, um, you know, and and in a I mean it, that reminds me as well of of um, somebody like Robert Peary, who was an American. Um, an early polar explorer. He wanted to find the North Pole. I mean, that was that was his life's mission, really. Um, and he took himself off, and he claimed that he had he had journeyed to the North Pole in 1909. Um, but of course, his claim couldn't be substantiated because he didn't have um, enough witnesses there who could corroborate his story. And it later. Well, yes, this is the thing. And of course, the equipment that he was using was very basic and rudimentary. And um, it was later, um, I think, it, I mean, obviously, there is no way of knowing absolutely exactly where Peary was standing when he was claiming to, to be at the North Pole. Um, and there was another rival, just to complicate it um, still further, there was another um, American called Frederick Cook, who was also heading for the North Pole and claiming that he had stood there too. And it's, uh, it turns out that he also um, was claiming falsely the North Pole. So we had in the same year, both these two rivals um, vying for attention. And it was only decades later that um, a, modern, a fairly modern day polar explorer, Sir Wally Herbert, was actually given access to Peary's journals. Um, and he examined them and mapped his journey and he being a polar explorer himself he could almost he actually walked in his footsteps and he he concluded that Peary may have been as close as 60 miles um, to the North Pole but he he was most likely not standing at the, the North Pole at the time um, so it's all you know it is very circumstantial and there is always a certain amount of ambiguity there's always some kind of give and take and and there's that's what I like about exploration really it's not black and white it's like the Everest story too it was hard to know uh, who made it to the top when they don't get back down alive (laughs) so Exactly. I mean, that's the ultimate thing with George Mallory and and Sandy Irving, you know, that nobody will ever know um, what
1: happened. Well, you present an array of colorful extroverts as well as more modest and thoughtful ones. One of my favorite adventurers was Frederick Marshman Bailey, who assumed a cover identity. And he actually convinced a Bolshevik secret police in Tashkent to hire him. And his mission was to find the elusive Frederick Marshman Bailey who happened to be standing right in front of them. Do you have a favorite tale of daring do from your book that you'd like to share?
0: Well, actually, I've got to say that Bailey is probably my favorite just because of the outrageous um, daring, really, that he had. And he managed to continue it through something like 18 months of living right, really on the edge in Bolshevik Russia. Um, he was the most amazing person. And I've just actually just been reading more about his escape from Bolshevist Russia, which was just as incredible. Um, but if I picked, if I had to pick another person, it would be um, Sir Alan Cobham, who was a, a dashing um, aviator, a pioneering aviator in the 1920s and 30s. And his whole life really was an example of daring do, um, because he flew this tiny little de Havilland biplane. He was actually a test pilot at one stage. Um, and he flew this little de Havilland biplane, and he had this, this um, dream of proving that air travel was safer and faster and more efficient than travel by ship. Because, of course, in the 1920s, um, there was no real such thing as, as you know air travel to worldwide destinations. Everybody went by, um, by ship, by steamship to um, places like you know, Australia, India, Africa. Um, Cobham decided that he was going to prove that it was feasible to fly there Um, and so that's exactly what he did he convinced, um, he was lucky because he had um, a series of quite wealthy sponsors, patrons who were willing to go with him and and sort of fund his flights and his adventures and so he mapped out routes um, by which he um, took his little biplane in various stages across Europe, um, down through the Middle East to um to the far east to Australia. He flew it to India and all around India and to South Africa. And he managed to do that um, even though he, on several occasions he was flying this this little plane, which was so vulnerable in many respects to the to the weather and to the elements. Um, I mean for one on one one particular example that I'm thinking of um, he managed to crash-land it into a snowy hillside in the Carpathian Mountains. And he and his passengers all managed to climb out alive, and they clambered down the hillside to the nearest village and managed to telegraph for help. And luckily help came, and they were they were dug out of the hillside, and then, then they managed to continue their journey back um, through Europe and on down towards India. Um, but, you know, on pretty much every stage of his journey, Cobham was dealing with some kind of potential disaster, you know, he was hanging, everyone was hanging onto their seats in, in a sort of a white knuckle ride at the last minute as he tried to land it in some desperate place or another, or um, or something was just about to catch fire, or he was being fired on or something. And, um, you know, it, it was just amazing what he did. I mean, for example, when he got to the Himalayas, and he had a little bit of free time, he thought, well... It would be quite fun if I could fly over Everest. So, he hired somebody as a navigator and a photographer, and he took this little biplane. Remember, it's like an open cockpit. So he flew up, and of course, they were they were starved of oxygen after a certain altitude, and his his nav- his navigator passed out, um, and so it was you know Cobham was was obviously suffering as well, but he managed to land it again pretty safely, and they were both fine. Um, and then he was flying it when he went to Africa. He flew the airplane over to do a bit of sightseeing, and the um, the spray from the falls actually got into the engine and choked the engine, and it stalled. And so there they were plummeting down these falls, um, staring death in the face, as it were. And he was pulling back on the joysticks, and trying to stop the stall, and, and the engine managed to catch just at the last minute, and um, he pulled it out and, and got them got them back up to safety. Um, And all the time that he was doing this and coming back with these amazing kind of survival stories, he was at the same time trying to convince the British public that aviation was safe. You know, imagine trying to do that when he'd had all these kind of near misses. He wanted to prove that it was perfectly safe and relaxing and feasible for people to go on these long distance journeys. Um, And that it was much more simple and, and cost effective than travel by sea. Um so as as didn't with him. yes exactly and yet you see this is the thing nobody ever actually died they just had a they just had a very exciting time so he, i don't think he ever actually lost anybody you know it was ah no he did there was there was he lost um an engineer because that was that was not his fault though because they were shot at um and his engineer was was hit and wounded Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he was an exceptional aviator. I mean, he flew an airplane as if it was part of his body. You know, he, he really was, and you're reading his biography and his memoirs. He was very understated about it. He didn't boast about it, but my goodness, you know, he was, he was so skilled and he inspired something like 75% of the next generation of pilots for, who signed up for the, um, RAF in the second world war you know that he was such an inspiration to the young men who were coming through you know and wanted to be pilots at the time
1: that's a good thing yeah, because they, they definitely needed them and
0: they certainly the did second world yeah, war. yeah mm-hmm. exactly so you know so many of these these explorers are influential in so many well and there ways, weren't really. just so men
1: explorers there were actually a few women explorers I was happy to read about those I did note that some of them from the 19th century often began their work late. For example, Mary Kingsley did not begin exploring till age 30 when the deaf of her parents freed her from the role of caregiver. Can we speculate that it took much longer for a woman to reach a social position, which made it possible to carry out her wishes? Yes,
0: I think that is a good point, and I think that is the case. Um, and I think some of the women were actually born into a social position which made it possible to carry out their wishes um and it, particularly with Mary Kingsley, I mean she had obviously received the inheritance of her father of her parents, so that gave her the um that gave her the funds in order to buy her passage um to Africa. Um, and of course, for the women explorers, particularly, especially in the 19th century and the early 20th, um, they needed the money because they didn't have the sponsorship um, that a lot of the male explorers did on these sort of high-profile expeditions. They had to had to have their own personal finance, you know, in order to afford the the, the passage, to to buy the help of the guides when they got there, and and to um, pay for accommodation when they needed it. Um, So money was a very important factor for them, you know, as well as the independent spirit to actually, you know, stimulate them to go in the first place. Um, The only the only exceptions to that that I can think of were people like Mildred Cable and and her friends, the Mrs. French, the two French sisters um, who signed up as missionaries. But, of course, they actually had then they had the backing of the China inland mission. So they were funded. Um, That was really their job from then onwards. And they didn't really need any money as long as they had enough food, you know, as long as they had enough food that they were given whenever they went to, you know, because they were crossing the Gobi Desert, they were, they were in, in Western China. So they learned to subsist on pretty much, you know, humble rations, you know, as long as they had enough food. Um, they didn't really need any other money. It yeah. seemed like their faith sustained them. Yes, absolutely. It certainly did because there wasn't anything else. You know, they, their faith actually carried them through. Um, and I think that was also true of Annie Taylor. You know, it was the determination. She was. She also was a, a missionary, you know, the one who got into Tibet when she really shouldn't have been there and, and wanted to try and, and get to the Dalai Lama. And it was really that determination that kept them going. And And a lot of these women, I think, also, were from households, which would have had at least a few servants. So they were used to hiring people to help them, they were used to, to um, possibly giving commands, you know, probably in a nice in a nice way, but appreciating um, their help. So they, they probably had an air of command about them. Um, and that I think, probably made them best. So, you know, people like Isabel Wiley Hutchison, for example, who went off to Greenland and then um, Alaska and Arctic Canada. She came from quite a privileged background and she was lovely. I mean, she didn't have any self-importance about it. She treated people equally, but from the point of view of how she carried herself, she had a certain air of respectability about her that you wouldn't, you know, there was almost a line that you wouldn't cross with her. And I think it was that with with a lot of these women, I think they had a sense of um, a sense of their own. Uh... Presence, really. They had a presence, you know, and, and you know, they they, they seemed to be able well, to. Well, we were on a um, topic of money, people, um, so I was going to go um, ahead and skip forward to
1: time. our last question. And I think
0: people could see that. We were talking about, about well.
1: how some explorers had their travels underwritten by institutions or governments who had specific goals in mind, such as acquisition of natural resources or expansion of contested territories. And others found them themselves in dire financial straits. Free spirit Dame Freya Stark arrived and rushed on the shore of the Caspian Sea with only nine pence in her pockets. So please tell our readers about the advantages and disadvantages of being financed versus raising one's own funds.
0: Well, um, obviously, there are huge advantages of being financed. I mean, the the expeditions, for example... Um, that were led by Robert Falcon Scott, the Discovery Expedition and the Terra Nova Expedition um, in the early 1900s. Um, they had government backing as well as, you know, some private sponsors as well that other explorers had at a similar time. And um, they they obviously had the freedom then to buy the ships, kit them out. You know, they had all the equipment at their disposal. They could hire the crew. They had they they had access to um a crew that was um experienced and skilled. They had access to scientists. Um, and they also had the backing of the country behind them. You know, they they had and, and there must have been a huge morale boost from that. You know, the fact that their country was for them and that they you know they had this wonderful mission to perform and that they'd been chosen to um, to carry it out, um, and also with the African explorers, the early African explorers. I mean, they were often employed by European countries um, during a time which was known as the Scramble for Africa, um, and their mission really was to make trade deals with African people, um, to obtain agreements on land and mineral rights and this kind of thing. Um, and so they again had a mission to perform, and they were they were funded um to to do that um, but of course there were specific goals that they had to achieve and that they couldn't waver from so if they failed they failed and there was a lot of um embarrassment and shame if they did fail um or potentially and they they couldn't really they, be all that flexible you know they had to stick to those um instructions they couldn't really deviate or follow their own Um, instincts or if they found something that they wanted to pursue they didn't they couldn't really um, sort of take a different course or or set off somewhere else even if they might have might have wanted to and so there must have been a pressure from that there must have been quite a pressure on them um, knowing that there was this weight of expectation and also there was a there was a responsibility that they had for crew members and team members they had to be good leaders you know so they had this uh, they had people depending on them for their lives, really. They, you know, de- the decisions that they made, you know, could mean life or death for uh, not just them, but for their crew. So they, they couldn't change um, their plans on a whim. Um, so, you know, that there really were huge advantages, but disadvantages as well, as far as I can see. Um, and yet, the in particular, you were saying about the women, and the women are the ones, most of the time, not all of the time, who were sort of financing their own expeditions um they could go where they wanted of course you know because they weren't they were only accountable to themselves um they could stay as long as they wanted and they didn't have to have any reason at all to go just because you know as, as freya stark says you don't really need a reason just that you you've never been there that's that's all all the reason you need and as long as they could afford to buy food, but even Freya Stark, you know, she didn't really care that she only had ninepence in her pocket. I think she thought that was, a, I think she thought that was wonderful. Um, and, and she was, she had such a charm about her. She could charm her way into anybody's um, good books. And she certainly did, you know, she charmed her way out of many potentially lots. And it was a lovely time from that point of view, I think, because um, women explorers in particular were offered hospitality, um wherever they went, you know, they, they seemed to have um this knack of being able to find somewhere to sleep or some family or some you know village that would give them a meal and, and a bed for the night um in exchange for their, their own company, in exchange for their stories. And and it was a sense of exchanging stories and exchanging um identity, really. You know, a, a lot of people that Isabel Wiley Hutchison stayed with in Greenland um had never seen a Scotswoman before. She was she thinks she was the first Scotswoman who actually set foot in Greenland. So there was a lot of interest in her. So she was she was a kind of a minor celebrity there. Everybody wanted to meet her and she was very modest but of course she, she was quite happy to share her own stories from back home and, and um there was this kind of exchange going on. Um, and so you know women explorers could be as free as they wanted. They could they didn't have to Um, come back by any time they didn't have to um, account to anybody for their for their travel or anything they were they were just able to follow their instincts and they could travel solo as well they didn't have to um, well apart from if they needed you know if they had big sort of baggage to be carried as Mary King Mary Kingsley did yeah Um, so really I would say you know in a sense you could argue argue that that was the true spirit of travel you know that they um, just traveled when and where they wanted to um, and, of course, when they came home, they became a lot of them became travel writers and they lectured in order to earn money. So they made a, a, a nice career out of it. So we were just talking about how uh, the
1: explorers that were on their own without the backing of the government, perhaps, or not representing business interests, how these were often women who were... Uh, contacting people uh, kind of in a more personal sense, perhaps swapping stories. So that leads into the next question, which begins with an example about Rosie Swell Pope. She began a journey around the world in, 1950 in at age 57. And she describes meeting a desperate man who held a blade to her throat and demanded her phone. she Talk to him gently until he released her. And the French sisters who were traveling with Mildred Cable quite a bit earlier had a similar hair-raising encounter with a Chinese bandit. And so do you think the ability to communicate with others in a soothing fashion is as important as great strength and rude health?
0: Yes, very much so. I mean, you could argue that it's, that it's even more important because... Um, you know, they, it saved their lives on, on both of those occasions. Um, and I think certain, certain kind of self-belief, you know, self-command um, that both uh, Rosie Swale Pope and the French sisters and Mildred Cable had, um, I wouldn't say that they were fearless because they certainly knew what fear was, um, but they were driven by this, this genuine love of people Um, they they could see beyond the apparent evils of people and they could talk to them in a loving way, in a forgiving way. I mean, it sounds incredible considering the situations they were in, but that is what they did. Um, And they could talk themselves out of um, potential harm in that way. And it wasn't just that one occasion, you know, particularly with Rosie Swell Pope. I mean, she had to talk herself out of a lot of situations across Siberia and Russia and and obviously the French sisters as well and Mildred Cable you know but they had this this kind of lifestyle this life belief that something was something bigger than what they could actually see was was protecting them Um, and then again there were people like um, Frank Kingdon Ward who was the plant collector who went across to the, the Himalayas and Tibet. I mean, he knew how to party most definitely, you know, and he could talk himself out of any situation as well um, with the Tibetans. I mean, there was one occasion where he was being entertained by some villagers somewhere in the Himalayas. And he, he says anyway, that by mistake, he managed to get married to the daughter of the house during the course of the evening. Um, so he had to talk himself out of that, which could have been a potentially threatening situation just from the point of view of honour, you know, at the time. And, and uh,
1: Absolutely, it would have been an yes. insult to René. Yes,
0: exactly. So, you know, he could have, you know, it, it, it could have been could have escalated quite easily. But um, I think this um, this ability to relate to people, to any people on, on a sort of hum- human level, rather than, you know, the sense of class that um, would obviously have put them on a, on a back foot, as it were. You know, people, you know, the the ability to see the other people as, as humans and relate to them um, and to share their hospitality and and to be genuinely interested in them. And I think that is a common theme with with these people you know male and female that that they um that they could see through all the sort of um possibly the prejudices that were rampant at the time and um and view these people that were that were offering just offering them simple kindness you know Um, and again we've got people like bertram thomas the um the desert explorer i mean he had to negotiate with hostile tribes in order to get himself across the um the Rubal Kali, the, the great southern desert, and his life was on the line many times. And, and, of course, he obviously had to be fluent in the languages that they spoke, but and he also had to understand their culture. You know, that was another very important thing, that they had. he had to understand their code of honour um, and negotiate on their terms and understand what they were bound to, um, as well as being very persuasive and gentle. You know, he had to be determined and, and flexible, um, and that's really what gained their respect, you know, in so many ways. Is that if he could, the, these people who could bring themselves to the to the level of the of their hosts, um, they were the ones who could strike up the best relationship, and those are the ones who survived. Yeah,
1: there were probably many deaths as well. People who didn't come back, who found themselves in very dangerous situations, and reacted with yeah. violence. Mm-hmm. Well. Most of the explorations in the book, of course, are far horizons, places like the Gobi Desert or the Antarctic or Tibet. But in 1922, Marion Newbegin argued that exploring Europe was overlooked as, and I quote, the really superior person is apt to feel that distance, difficulty, or great cost alone can justify a journey. I wondered if you or the RSGS have a tip for good exploring an adventure destination on a European continent.
0: Well, I wouldn't say that I have traveled sufficiently on the European continent myself to give any real inside tips, but I would love to say that the RSGS have a lecture program every, every year, which they call Inspiring People Talks, um, who share stories of adventure all over the world, including including Europe. So um, there are always people there who are sharing their latest um, exciting destinations and places to um, to explore within Europe, um, if I was speaking for myself, I would like to start with Scotland um, as part of Europe because you know it's often overlooked. You know what's on your doorstep. I mean, it's on my on my doorstep personally. Um, there's so much beauty and variety in in the Scottish Scottish landscape, um, and particularly on the west coast and the islands and the mountains. You know, the mountains have inspired a lot of famous mountaineers. Um, people like um, W.H. Murray, Chris Bonington, and uh, some of the famous geologists, early geologists like Archibald Geeky and um, oceanographer Sir John Murray. You know, they were all inspired by Scotland's landscape. And it is a little known thing, you know, that there's so much, there's so many islands, for example. The west coast of Scotland is just beautiful. It's a paradise if, you, if you're if you into the outdoors or if you love kayaking or sailing. Um <laughs> Wild. It is wild, yeah. I mean, it's it's wild and, and fairly unpopulated, you know. And, and if you, even if you made it um, a, a little kind of project to visit every single one of Scotland's islands, you know, you'd be doing it for years, decades probably. There are so many of them. Um, and it is, it's the wildness and the wildlife that makes them so beautiful and, and sort of the ever changing light. I mean on the downside, you know, we we you know there's the dark winters and the you know the weather is not always brilliant. But you know when it's when it is a lovely day it is so beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So yeah, that's my recommendation.
1: Well I'm gonna throw in one too. Uh, I live in Switzerland. And uh, it's very easy to have an adventure and still maintain a certain level of comfort because the entire country is crisscrossed by trails that are listed through various degrees of difficulty. And those trails lead to simple huts, even in the very high areas. They're maintained by the Swiss Alpine Club, usually dormitory-style accommodations, but you can get a hot meal, and so you can hike five or six hours get to a place which is pretty much in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and then you can just continue the next day and you can go from one hut to another Pretty much for as long as you can hold out, and as long as
0: you can stand to wear your clothes, yeah. That's without fantastic. washing them. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a similar situation. You know, in mm-hmm. Scotland, you know, we have hostels. I mean, there's always um, sort of routes that you can take, waymarked routes with. You know, the, there are sort of long distance walking routes, for example, um, across Scotland and and all around Britain. So it's a similar kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it all depends on your on your, what you're looking for, really. I guess that's that's the thing. I mean. If, if you love hill walking or if you love wildlife or the outdoors or you know even if you wanted to sail you know you could sail around the islands you know it's, it's just infinite really isn't it that's the thing it's just
1: there's just so much to do it, it makes one look forward to the next vacation well back to your work you had access to historical archives by working through the royal with the Royal Scottish Geographic Society. Did your perusal of the material lead you to think there was enough there for a good book about one of the lesser-known explorers?
0: Well, yes, in many cases. I mean, although it has to be said that that some of the lesser-known explorers do have um, books written about them, um, some of them quite obscure and some of them, you know, many years ago. Um, but yes, I mean, there are many stories still waiting to be written, and I think that the addition sometimes of the material that's in the RSGS archives could bring a new perspective or, or a different angle onto some of these stories. I mean, for example, um, the, probably the best example I can think of is Annie Taylor, um, the missionary who took herself off to Western China and then, you know, got into Tibet, had that amazing trek through Tibet in winter to get to, to try and get to Lhasa. I mean, there's nothing about her at all that I've discovered, um, apart from her own collected memoirs, which um, are pretty scanty. I mean, she, she doesn't write with a very dramatic frame of mind, so you really have to get a sense yourself of the kind of danger that she was in. Um, so there is something there that, that is, you know, ready to be investigated. Because, and as well as that, she did, you know, she did present papers to the, the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, you know, so there is material there to, to take it further. Um and there are other people as well that would be worth investigating. Like we've already talked about Frederick Marshman Bailey. I mean again he presented papers to the RSGS and you know there are always elements by because simply because he was just this master of deception. So anything that he said was an understatement and it was always masking about five other extraordinary things. You know, that he he just he he just went through life in this kind of debonair james bond kind of style and as if it was nothing and you know there there was just so much more beneath the surface with him um so yes i'd love i'd love to investigate him a bit further I could
1: picture Robert Downey Jr. with a British accent playing him. For maybe a bit of a laugh, not truly historically accurate, and you know, taking some liberties
0: here that and there. That would be perfect. I think his I think his story is is just crying out for some kind of you know epic um, movie treatment because it is just amazing his his um, his life story incredible. Yeah, and and. And, of course, you know, you've got to say that, you know, some of the contemporary explorers, you know, are at the same time not forgetting um, other people in the book who are still, you know, who are exploring now at this precise moment. Their their stories are still works in progress, you know. So um, some of them don't yet have biographies written about them. Some of them perhaps have written autobiographies to date. Um, But, you know, they also um, are waiting for... um, you know, some kind of, of written account of, of their own doings. So, so yeah. So what are you working on these days, Joe? Well, at the moment, I have just finished um, doing some lectures for the RSGS. So that's what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is actually going around Scotland and, and talking about the book and some of the explorers that inspired it. In the meantime, I am doing a bit of writing for the RSGS in in terms of supplying some material for their magazines, which is an ongoing thing, and writing blog posts for their email newsletter. And I'm also collecting material for um, my my next project, which I am thinking about. And I have a particular interest um, in women explorers. So that's that's my particular field of interest at the moment. So at the moment, I'm just compiling lists of interesting people um, over the last of 150 years or so, and, and, you know, obviously contemporary explorers as well. There's some fascinating um, potential characters there to, to take it further. So, so yes, but in the meantime, as well as that, I'm, I'm you know, I've still got a, a library of books here that I'm dipping into and finding more about, because, you know, the, the 50 people that I've written about, it, necessarily in the book, are quite short, and there's so much more to tell, and I'm constantly finding more and more about them and you know the things that they did and they are all without question without exception you know still astonishing me in so many ways it's just a joy really to read about them
1: well it sounds like you've been quite busy and thanks so much for fitting us into your schedule today it's been a pleasure
0: well it's, it's been my pleasure and thank you very much for asking me and I've very much enjoyed chatting about it with you
1: Thanks for joining us today on New Books and Fantasy and Adventure for my interview with Joe Wolfe, the author of The Great Horizon 50 Tales of Exploration. You can find out more about Joe on her website, www.thehazeltree.com, and there's hyphens between the hazel and tree. I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the historical fantasy falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and The Falcon Strikes. I blog about travel and other things which inspire me on my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. That's kind of an unusual spelling. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm on Twitter at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Goodbye till next time.